Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell, and I'm glad you're with us. You know, one of the biggest concerns for so many Canadians is the cost of food. But there's a lot of, uh, let me just say, misinformation floating around out there. Yes, it's easy to oversimplify and blame the grocery stores, but that's not what we do on Money Talks. My goal here is to broaden the discussion, inform the discussion, then you make up your own mind. Well, we're going to do that with food this week. We're going to do it with Sylvain Charlebois. He's the director of the agricultural or agri-analytics department at Dalhousie University. They do absolutely brilliant work there. They're the go-to source. Well, he's going to join me today. I'm also going to get Ryan Irvine on with me from uh, Keystone Financial. Again, they do a great job with stock selection. Their track record speaks for itself. Well, I said to Ryan, I know you've got a couple of seminars coming up. How about sharing a little time with us? Tell us what you're going to do, but give us a couple of stock choices. He's going to do precisely that. Plus, of course, we'll have our Goofy Award, which I think is a very good one. Uh, we've got Michael with us. I've got Ozzy with us, and I got Victor. So it's a great show. I'm glad you're with me here. But first, did you happen to see this week how the Department of Energy now agrees with the FBI view that COVID was, in quotes, most likely a potential lab incident, a potential leak from a Chinese government-controlled lab? I kind of went, say what? I thought government officials, social media, and others in the mainstream said that was a conspiracy theory. People put forward the lab leak were censored, suspended from social media, called conspiracy nuts. But now we've got two major U.S. agencies, along with a host of experts, saying a lab leak is the most likely explanation. I want to be clear, it's not a consensus. But that's actually my point. I mean, so much about COVID, the disease itself was unknown. So there are bound to be mistakes or changes in direction. But my point is those mistakes were exacerbated by an attitude that says, hey, no questions. No questioning the government narrative. And that came at a huge cost. Now, this is just my take. But the establishment attitude seems to be to have managed the public, never to inform us and then let us make our own decisions. I repeat, I expected health officials to make mistakes. I mean, little was known about COVID at the outset. But discouraging questions was not the way to increase our understanding. I mean, it's disconcerting to hear experts like John Hopkins Chair in Gastrointestinal Surgery and Professor of Surgery in Public Health, Dr. Marty McCary, testify under oath before a congressional hearing this week. In quotes, the greatest perpetrator of misinformation during the pandemic has been the U.S. government. And given that Canadian health officials walked in lockstep with the U.S., the statement applies here too. I mean, at the very least, giving our health officials every benefit of the doubt, the communication strategy is so severely lacking, which was made all the more damaging because of the dire consequences. I mean, people were losing their jobs, losing their businesses, their financial well-being. I mean, for millions of Canadians, public trust has been eroded. And to date, I haven't seen any effort to actually mitigate the damage. I mean, people understand that mistakes would be made. We didn't have complete information. And given this is not going to be the last pandemic, at least we're told that, I think it's incredibly important to understand what lessons have been learned so we don't repeat them. I mean, my suggestion would be to not present information with the degree of certainty they did that wasn't warranted, and then compound the problem by not acknowledging new information as we went along came through that would warrant a change in strategy. Let me repeat, the lessons learned should be to encourage questions, not stifle them and listen to different views, not censor them, and certainly don't politicize what is a health issue, which I know may be a pipe dream because there's lots of evidence that suggests that political considerations did trump medical expertise in so many instances. 
When we found that vaccinated people could transmit COVID also, I mean, that should have at least begged a change in the discussion around mask mandates, but it didn't. I haven't heard a satisfactory explanation for the reluctance of medical officers to acknowledge the effectiveness of natural immunity. Now, I'm, I'm not sure why there's been, hasn't been more talk about a recent study by the prestigious medical journal Lancet, which reviewed 65 separate studies from 19 countries and, collude, and concluded in quotes, our analysis of the available data suggests that the level of protection afforded by previous infection is at least as high, if not higher, than that protected, provided by two-dose vaccinations using high-quality mRNA vaccines. As the study's senior author, Dr. Christopher Murray states, the study, in quotes, supports the idea that those with documented infection should be treated similarly to those who have been fully vaccinated with high-quality vaccines. But that's not what happened. We had no change in that. Instead, many people lost their job. I mean, think of the devastation. And you have members of the military dishonestly, dishonorably discharged, teachers, police, other first responders, nurses, and other medical personnel. I mean, people were denigrated as anti-vaxxers and made social outcasts and restricted from participating in society. I think most disturbing, given the human hardship this caused, is that, as Dr. Makari states, the data on natural immunity protecting against severe disease was there all along. I mean, the recent Lancet article simply reviewed every major study done on the topic and reached the same conclusion. And finally, there are still a lot of questions to be answered as to why, despite lockdowns being rejected as a means to constrain the spread of COVID, because they produce far greater negative consequences, but we went ahead with them. My, my thing is, what about the conversation? Why? I mean, come on, in January 2020, when the Chinese announced their lockdowns, Dr. Fauci himself responded by saying, in quotes, historically, when you shut things down, it doesn't have a major effect. In, in July 2020, 18 Canadian health and infectious disease experts, including Dr. Uh, Butler Jones, the immediate predecessor to Theresa Thomas, Canada's chief public health officer, warned political leaders that the current approach to dealing with COVID carries significant risk to the overall population. My goodness, in October, the World Health Organization in 220, they have their special envoy to COVID, scientist David Nabarro. He stated in quotes, we live in the world, we in the World Health Organization do not advocate lockdowns as a primary means of controlling this virus. So why the about face on lockdowns, which is predicted in advance, produced a huge array of negative consequences, including long-term learning costs, uh, of even short-term school closures, adverse effects for delayed medical treatment, I mean, addiction, spousal abuse, enhanced consequences for people with intellectual disabilities. But the lasting impact here, my point, which so few in the establishment seem to appreciate, is that the further erosion of confidence in government and health officials in this case, on the part of millions of Canadians, is there. For them, trust has been broken. Confidence in government and its institutions is severely damaged. As I said, repairing the damage starts with an honest, full conversation about what happened during the pandemic. What lessons have we learned that we cannot repeat? But so far, there's been no appetite for that. No sign of a truly independent inquiry. Well, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why so many in the mainstream media thought right from the get-go their job was to parrot the government narrative. As I said, so many questions to be answered, and that doesn't augur well for our future if we leave them out in limbo. We need an honest discussion. 
Hey, by the way, a big thanks uh, to everyone who supported us with the Polar Plunge. It's very exciting, of course. And I'm very impressed with Dave Braithwaite and his wife, uh, uh, Anch uh, Wilson. Scott Grant and his sister Lee are going to join us. And Ree Yonita is going to join us. And 14-year-old Robert Jarvis and his sister Eva. I mean, are you crazy? No, they're very helpful. They're supportive. It's going to be fun. One o'clock. English Bay across from the Sylvia Hotel, if you're not sure. But anyways, I look forward to, well, I'm not looking forward to the plunge. I look forward to seeing all the people joining us. But in the meantime, a big thanks for all who've donated to support the Special Olympics. And you can still do it. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and you can click on right there. Anyways, as I say, the big message, so much appreciated. I always enjoy getting a chance to talk to Ryan Irvine, keystocks.com, keystocks.com, Keystone Financial. Ryan joins me now. Ryan, I, there's a lot of things that are buzzing through my head. I mean, one of the things, you and I have been chatting together. I, I really don't know how long it's been. I mean, uh, you still it's don't have long, great... Probably, right? Well, I had dark hair, I think, at that point. But uh, let me just start with one. And this is a great story because I'm going back, and I've got a good memory for this kind of stuff, to 2005. And you introduced a company named Hammond uh, Power Systems. And I remember liking yeah. it at the time. Uh, you know, HPA was a symbol. And it was, I think it was like $1.15, $1.25, $1.50, you know, all that kind of range. And so with you coming on, I had a quick check on Friday and we're talking the $28 range now. I, I By the way, I'm experienced enough to understand that's a winner. <laughs> you, know, but, you know, so I pay a, a buck and a quarter, let's say, and uh, I get in at a buck 50 and I got a $28 stock in my hand. I, there's just so much goes through my head with that because uh, I'll, I'll tell you my own history. If I trouble to hold on to those that long, you know, it's a winner. You're up several hundred percent. The market gets into a weak period like it was in the fall, for example. You know, I pulled the trigger. You guys didn't. And I want you to explain that whole process. Yeah, well, I'll take you through it. We look at a company, each time we look at it, like we have fresh eyes on the business. In, in terms of how and power, you are correct. It was back in 2005 when we originally recommended it to our clients. And on this show, $1.15, it's $28 today. It's, that's, the return there is over 2,000%. That's not even including the dividend. It's upped its dividend significantly over that period. Uh, but it, we look at it each time with fresh eyes. There has been a couple times we actually sold... Uh, recommended selling when it went to $18 years and years ago. Uh, but then we bought back recently in the $7 range. Um, the company, I mean, it's, I think we should tell people, because we just recommended it here on the show uh, just in uh, October yeah. of this past year when it was in the $16 range. And, and again, it's up 69% since then, just four months. But let's talk about what the business does. They enable the electrification or electrification of the world. And like it or love it, uh, or like it or don't love it, uh, electric cars are here and they're here to stay. And this is a, a theme that we'd like to play into. And this is kind of a backdoor way of doing it. They offer dry type transformers, power quality products and related magnetics that are used uh, in the electrical distribution industry across the globe. Now, at the time when we originally recommended them in 2005, um, they had a strong market in energy, mining, silicon, chip manufacturing, and data centers had just started. Now, the new opportunities that have really boosted this company is in evolving technologies like EV charging, solar energy, energy storage. Those are examples. I'll give you an example as well. The, every Tesla station, every charging <laughs> station in Canada uses Hammond transformers. So 
there's growth there. It's a smaller part of the business, but there's growth. Now, when we look at this company right now, is it being up 2,000%, being up 69% since October, is it a good value? Well, it still trades at 9.3 times earnings. The overall market is 18 to 20 times. We saw 56% revenue growth in the last quarter. Earnings were 97 cents per share up from 34. So tremendous growth in earnings. Order backlog is up 141%. This company will report its Q4s near the end of this year or end of this month, sorry. And, uh, you know, even if we apply just a 10 times multiple to the $3 that we think it'll earn this year, that gives us a $30 target. Now, it's starting to approach that near term, but we still think that it offers reasonable value and a way to play this electrification. Uh, most of the ways to play it have already been discovered and you're paying 30 to 50 times earnings. You're paying nine times here and it, you know, it's cash rich, no debt on the balance sheet on a net cash basis. So, you know, it is a business we still like. It's not a bad solution to take a half position out of the company. You can take a half, you know, half of your original position out, then you're playing with market money and you can hold this over the next three to 10 years as you think that story of uh, electrification of the world continues. That's a one way to do it and one way we've advised clients over time to do that. Yeah, but the point I want people to hear is that you got to have a reason to buy and yeah. cheap cheap isn't a reason, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I, I, I still remember on that side of the coin, I'll talk about uh, Nortel. I remember somebody in the business asked me about Nortel and uh, it had fallen from 120 to about the $30 range. And yes. he said, what do you think? And I said, well, I'm going to be buying it at two bucks if any time. You know, in other yeah. words, yes, it was cheap. It was going a lot cheaper. So you need to have some reasons. And that's what you just provided. Are you a seller? Well, let's look at the story. The story still has legs. The valuations are still positive, as opposed to just making emotional decisions is my point here, you yeah. know, that you described very well. But let's talk evaluations totally in the market. You know, we've had a, a big correction. Then we've had a nice recovery. Where, and I know this is a broad question, but what are you seeing when you look at market valuations today? That's an awesome question. Um, in, in 2022, markets entered a bear period. Now, risk assets were, took more of a beating. Uh, they came on sale in, in some regards. Now, the S&P 500 was down 19%. The NASDAQ was down 33%. Many individual stocks down 65% plus. So higher risk tech. Inflated prices led to these declines, but moving up the risk ladder, if you look at the TSX Venture, it was actually down 40% last year. For an entire index, that is a bloodbath. So on the flip side, in this environment, you can start to see some opportunities open up. But we have to understand, like you said, where we are. are, there, are is there really blood in the streets? Well, one metric we like to use is the Schiller PE on the S&P 500. It's a price divided by the average of 10 years earnings. It's a moving average adjusted for inflation. Essentially, we see it as a more reasonable market valuation indicator than the regular PE. So the Schiller PE, to put this in context, uh, today is at, on the S&P 500, about 28.9. So let's put that in context again. That's 10.9% higher than the recent 20-year average of 26.1. So it's far better than the range hit at the peak, the pandemic peak, that was November 2021, when it was 38 so that's 47% higher than the average PE over the last 20 years. So that's silly valuations at that time. Having said this, if we look back historically, so over 100 years since this in, the Schiller PE was tracked, 
it's still 66% above the average of 17.4. So that indicates we're not nearly historically cheap. So it makes the NASDAQ's rally, there was a rally up 14% to start 2023. It's up 10% right now. It's a bit eyebrow raising. And for, you know, so we use those data points all the time to see where the broad market is. The other part we do is we do qualitative analysis. Now, we've just been doing this over the course, again, of this year. We're going, or going through 3,000 companies. we got four analysts on that right now. So that's our boots on the ground qualitative analysis. There's, we're about three quarters of the way through those 3,000 companies. One of the things that we hear from management right now is they're talking about weaker end demand. So I'm going to piece the equation together now. Broader market is still not historically cheap and is facing growth challenges near term. So this rally to start the year for me seems like a bit of a dead cat bounce, a bounce at this point. Um, and I would, I would not want to buy uh, the index in the near term. Fortunately for us, it's a market of stocks, not a stock market. So there are individual companies like we talked about. Hammond Power during this period is up 69% because there is a growth story. You just really have to be careful at the companies you're looking at and the structure of those businesses. Well, and I'm not going to drill right down to the stock for a moment, but I'll get to the groups here. Are there, is there groups that jump out at you say, you know what? It would have to be an exceptional story because I'm sort of avoiding these groups right now. And I yeah. know you've already shared with us. I mean, you look at a growth stock with a high premium, but you got to check what is the premium you're paying there. You know that that's been death so far in the last couple, of, last year and a bit. It's a good question. Avoiding right now, we're paying so much attention to the balance sheet. We always do, but you got to avoid debt-heavy businesses, particularly cyclicals with heavy debt. This is where you can really get into trouble. Highly leveraged companies. Uh, interest payments are higher and eating into profitability. So we're avoiding those type of businesses. Favoring cash-rich businesses. These are stocks with net cash on the balance sheet, producing cash. They, have, they don't just have cash and no business. They got to be producing cash. And we, wa we want them to be able to weather a storm if it continues to come. Uh, but we also want them to be able to profit from it. Um, this is companies that can go out and buy businesses with cash on hand and not dilute you as an existing shareholder. I love to give real world examples and uh, your listeners will probably know this company well. We've highlighted it many times. It's Eng House. It's a software consolidator we've talked about, E-N-G-H on the TSX. It's up 34% since December in, in a weaker market. Uh, they have $228 million in cash in the bank. They've, they make, they've had a history of buying enterprise software businesses with cash, no dilution when they come on sale. So in select companies in the tech sector, you're seeing them come on sale. So they purchased two companies in the, uh, to start this year where they were very quiet for two years. So they're starting to invest that and the market is anticipating that. Those are the type of unique opportunities that we're looking for. Companies that can take advantage of a downturn because they have minded their uh, balance sheet and, and built up cash and can take advantage of a downturn and profit coming out of it. So this is where you can really make some money over the long term, but you have to be careful at what you're buying. You can't just buy tech stock XYZ because it's down 70%. Look at the business. That doesn't necessarily mean it's cheap. We look at Shopify all the time, you know, at one point down 80%, still trading at 135 times next year's expected earnings. That's not cheap. So you, got, you have to be careful which businesses you're looking at. Mind the balance sheets and make sure you're looking for businesses with current cash 
and growth outlooks ahead of them at reasonable prices. It's tough, but you can still find them. And it, it seemed to me that uh, just by the description you just made, they're recession-proof. I mean, having the cash yeah. is very important, obviously. Having a low debt load or one that's extremely affordable, you know, very easily affordable, seems like another. And, and if we enter a slow uh, environment, which I can provide you with 600 economists who think we will, it's the timing <laughs> they're debating at this point. Yes. You know, uh, and, and certainly the Bank of Canada agrees, by the way. I should have said that in the Federal Reserve. So, you know, recession proof is important. And just again, just a quick word on what kind of groups that is. Or, or do you have to dr- you have to drill down first to the company to see, will it weather a storm? Yeah, well, we, we like to look really company specific on the business. There are some unique stories in terms of Hammond Power. It does have economic sensitivity, but you still have wind at your back because of the huge push globally for electrification. So, yes, Traditionally, their markets like energy, uh, mining, uh, those can come off in a broad recession. But there's such a push to bring on EV recharging, solar, energy storage applications that it can buck a trend. And that's what you're really looking for. You got to look at businesses like that. Now, we we recommended, I'm not going to talk about the company today, but for your World Outlook uh, attendees, we recommended a company there that uh, really actually does better in a recession. And you can find some of those businesses that actually can benefit from a recession. And, uh, you know, anybody who attended the Outlook could find out about that company. And it's done well since then, even already. We like those businesses. Uh, Aaron recommended a company like Brookfield Infrastructure that has uh, index to inflation, long life assets, continues to pay a good dividend. So those are great businesses that we like to buy, regardless of the overall economic conditions. But, you know, you just want to buy that business that also can take advantage of those. So have that structure where they have cash. They, if interest rates go higher or stay in this rate, they don't have to pay more. And they can take advantage of a business that does and has a profit squeeze and buy it when it comes on sale. Well, I think people can tell it's so important how you approach the markets, how you build a portfolio. And I want to let people know, by the way, that you're doing actually a series of webinars coming up specifically on that. You'll also recommend stocks within that, but it's, you know, sort of a better way to build a stock portfolio in 2023. And so let me just give a couple of details there that uh, you're doing it on Tuesday, Tuesday, March 7th, Pacific time, seven o'clock, Pacific time, seven o'clock. Uh, March 9th, 7 o'clock, though, Eastern time on that one. Uh, And then on March 12th, you're doing a morning one. It would be 11 a.m. Pacific, and you're going to do a complete VIP stock portfolio building package live as you do it uh, right there. Now, for the first two, the March 7th and March 9th, uh, again, you're talking about uh, early bird tickets, so don't hesitate. Get on it right away. A VIP ticket of $79.95. Uh, the early bird ticket's only $29.95, so obviously very affordable. And uh, what's what's great, as I think, is uh, uh, people attending the webinar will receive one or two of Keystone's uh, brand new uh, reports. One is a Canadian dividend all-star report looking at, uh, you know, if dividend payers are, well, they should be a part of virtually everyone's portfolio, but if it's the main driver there, you're going to certainly want to get ahead of that. And the, you've also got your Canadian cash rich, cash rich profitable uh, small cap report also. Now, these things are regularly $599, so I would jump on that. But again, I just want to let you know, uh, March 7th, it's 7 p.m. Pacific, March 9th at 7 p.m. Eastern 
there. And then uh, a little bit separate on March 12th at 11 a.m. Pacific, you've got the complete VIP stock portfolio building package. Uh, tickets are 199, well, 1,999 at that. And you get the complete VIP stock portfolio building package includes, you know, a one-year membership to uh, a Keystone, a five-hour live on-demand webinars, 15 to 20 uh, five stock portfolio recommendations and a lot more. So yeah, tons of stuff to discuss on those, but I just want to make sure people know that, that you'll put that in practice for them, what we've just been chatting about. Plus you'll get some stock recommendations. So uh, I want to leave, I want to leave off with that. We're going to put this information, by the way, at mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca. So it's easy to remember, easy to go. But as I say, we're starting this coming Tuesday, uh, Ryan and Aaron will be there Tuesday and Thursday with the webinar. So that's March 7th and 9th. Uh, Ryan, but you know, I'm not letting you go without talking a little bit about uh, a couple <laughs> of stocks. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know me, I always love a stock recommendation. Sure. And uh, so uh, you've just talked about Hammond Power Systems, of course, uh, but give me one or two more. Yeah, I can give you some that follow in the line of good balance sheets and uh, that, that offer reasonable valuations right now. The first company we'll talk about is GeoDrill, a uh, symbol is GEO in the TSX, trades around uh, 280 right now, pays a 2% dividend, just above 2%, uh, $147 million market cap. They're a drilling exploration company, primarily gold in West Africa, Zambia, Egypt, and Peru. Their client mix is senior intermediate and junior exploration companies. They have 71 drills at present, uh, 75, sorry, 71 in West Africa, eight in Egypt and four in Peru, 75 are actually active right now. Now, um, Q3 numbers, uh, I can go over them, but these this company is coming out with their Q4 Monday and we expect growth there, but Q3 up 39% to 35 million, net income was up 107% to eight cents per share US from four, uh, net, Cash on the balance sheet is roughly $5 million. So on a PE multiple, we talked about the market trading at 18 to 20 times. This company trades at 5.6 times. EV to EBITDA is 2.7 times. Low valuations. We extract revenue growth to continue in 2023 and better profitability. So it's growth at a reasonable price. Higher geopolitical risk, but a good balance sheet to offset that. So our fair value is around... The uh, 370 range, 375 range, so significantly higher than its 280 price right now. So growth at a reasonable price, pays a dividend, higher volatility, but again, you you have that quality balance sheet, and it's a well-run business as well. And how long, uh, you know, and I know this is a broad question, how long do you expect to hold these? Or should someone, you know, not phone you, you know, uh, decide to buy it on Tuesday and they phone you on Friday kind of thing, you know? Yes, we're not, yeah, for sure. We're not, yeah. yeah, we're not looking to do that usually. We're, we're, we're looking at, we bought this company about a year, uh, about 16 months ago in the $1.60 to $1.80 range. I look to hold for two to three years. Uh, if the company continues to perform, I'd love to hold it for five years, but this is a cyclical business. So, you know, we're looking a year out right now. So at least a year holding on this as it continues to grow revenues, cash flow and earnings this year. That's what we'd be looking out. Then we revisit, of course, quarterly as the quarterly numbers come out and tell people whether or not that quarter was good. Continue to buy, hold or sell. Uh, give me one more, please. I mean, OK, no problem. Firan Technology Group, symbol FTG, around three dollars right now. Seventy three million dollar market cap. Pretty simple business, aerospace and defense electronics uh, product subsystem company, two operating units, FTG circuits, FTG aerospace, 
which manufactures electrical distribution networks, or sorry, no, they manufacture illuminated cockpits and panels and keyboards and sub-assemblies for the aerospace and defense industry. So thematically, the defense business is strong, and we're seeing that worldwide right now. Aerospace is in a significant recovery from being at a standstill during the pandemic. So building on this theme of a cash-rich business using its balance sheet, well, this company built up cash, didn't have debt, and bought two businesses in late fall. Now, those will add 30 to 40% growth to revenues in 2023. If you look at bookings in the last quarter, they're up 15% over the previous quarter, up 37% over the prior year. That was the eighth sequential growth rate or growth of quarterly bookings. Now, we expect them to have about 125 to 130 million in revenues this year. That would be 40% growth. Earnings per share would be about 25 to 27 cents. Uh, that is up from you know three to four cents last year. So significant growth in earnings. The the 2024 we expect 30 plus cents in earnings. So it's trading around 10 to 12 times earnings. Uh, we 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 just saw a good quarter up from the company. Fair value in the 375 range. So growth, reasonable price. Use their cash rich balance sheet to to in a down market to grow the business. We like a company that does that, and and we like the company going forward. And just quickly, with the webinars coming up, you'll give them some more. You'll, you'll of course, tell people how to build a portfolio, you know, and yes. how to measure this. But also, you'll get a couple more stock recommendations, I'll bet. Yes. Well, they actually get eight stock recommendations. They get those special reports that we were talking about there. So really helping them to understand how to build that portfolio. Aaron's going to also talk about chat GTP, how you can invest in artificial intelligence what to avoid. There's a lot of stocks coming out with an angle there that you want to avoid, what to actually look at. We're going to look at energy, traditional energy versus renewable energy and where the opportunities are and what to avoid there. So, so many things in that seminar. And you can ask us questions for 30 to 35 minutes at the end on any and all stocks in North America. Uh, So you'll probably get sick of us by the end of the webinar, but you know, it's at least a three hour webinar that you'll get there as well. Well, don't worry. I'll never get sick of you on Money Talks. And I just want to make sure. Nor will I of you. Oh, thank you. I just want to make sure people know Tuesday, March 7th, March 9th on the Thursday. No, 7 o'clock start, but it's Pacific on the 7th. Eastern 7 o'clock start on the 9th. See which one fits your schedule better. And then you've got uh, ahead to March 12th at 11 a.m. Pacific. But that's the big, complete VIP stock package building portfolio uh, with a whole bunch of stuff there, a whole litany of uh, benefits there. But all you have to do, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, you know, click on, get your registration, all the details there. Ryan, in the meantime, my best to you, my best to Aaron. Thanks so much for taking the time. Excellent. Thanks. And great to be on again. And I wish your listeners out there all profitable investing. Thank you. Oh, I forgot to say, Ryan, one more thing. Yeah. Okay. Ozzy and I doing the polar plunge. (laughs) Of course, uh, you know, talking about uh, this afternoon at one o'clock at English Bay. Guess what? Next year, you're going to be part of it, baby. You're young enough. You're Uh, young enough. I got to get in there. I'm bringing Aaron too. Okay. Wonderful. All right. Let's do that. Terrific. Thanks, Ryan. Hold me to it. Hold me to it. I will. Have a good one. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Let's talk a little more interest rates right now. Let me bring Michael Levy in with me. Hey, Mike, one of the interesting things is that you alluded to a week ago is the divergence between sort of the language that we're hearing out of Canada and the language we're hearing out of the U.S. So here we have this past uh, week, 
we got numbers over the fourth quarter GDP being basically flatlined, you know, uh, at a zero. And that's pretty much what Tiff Macklin had warned. But he also says, hey, maybe we shouldn't hit the panic button too much yet. Well, no, uh, Tiff Macklin basically has said and continue to say they're on a wait and see basis. They're not on a trajectory to raise rates. They're on a trajectory of data dependence. They have raised rates and they've raised them significantly. Now they're going to sit back and see what the results of that might be. That's so much different, Mike, than the U.S. who are in the midst of raising rates on a regular basis. And uh, that's driving Canada towards the same goals or results as the U.S., but with a different roadmap. And that's the whole thing. The Bank of Canada, not on a trajectory to continue to raise rates on a regular basis. Their U.S. counterpart is going to do just that, raise rates, and probably for the next two or three meetings. Yeah, it's kind of interesting in the U.S., the market's pricing in at least three more rate increases, you know, and that seems to be the consensus right now. Uh, you know, not so in Canada, as you just said, you know, sort of a much more wait and see attitude, you know, as they go through. But I think the other thing that, uh, you know, that Mr. Macklin sort of noted is, again, he's been the one saying expect zero growth. Well, we just got it in the fourth quarter. But he's also been the one saying, hey, it's don't run away screaming because we use the word recession. Oh, absolutely. And uh, he he. He really is looking for a recession to come, but he's, he's saying it's not going to be a bad one. It's not going mm-hmm. to be uh, anything like we saw in previous recessions, Mike. And um, uh, he, he's really tamping down any fear that might be spreading where uh, in the U.S. They, they are talking about recessions, again, uh, not as significantly as might be might unfold, but it's certainly a lot different conversation south of the border. Yeah, and he's also saying, Macklem's also saying he expects the economy to sort of stall into, at least into the third, well in the third quarter, uh, maybe even into the fourth quarter, you know, when he looks at October as a date, but rates staying kind of above the pre-pandemic level, that gives him room to drop it, because pre-pandemic, let's face it, we were, you know, I, I was looking at the numbers because uh, this past week on Wednesday, it was the one-year anniversary from when we started to re- increase interest rates, you know, when they went from a quarter of the overnight bank rate to a half, and and of course, now they've you know skyrocketed up to four point five percent. So it won't be tough to to say, hey, we're not going to go back to the pre-pandemic levels, you know. So, anyways, I mean that'd give us a long way to drop. But I think the message is a much milder message than what we're hearing from uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve. Well, I, I would say so, and, and you know, um, unemployment's going to go up a little bit in Canada, uh, but there's still a pretty healthy labor market. It's not going to oh, feel, yeah. as I just said, like recessions of 2008 or 1981 or 1991. But Mike, what it is going to do, and I think that we um, have to be concerned about this, is the impact on the Canadian dollar. If the U.S. raises rates like they say they're going to, Tiff Macklem says not so fast. We're not going to. Well, you know where money goes. Money goes where it gets its best return. And if the U.S. continues to raise rates, I think there's a conundrum there. Yeah, it is. And it's, it is interesting because we get that question a lot. Why would we follow U.S. rates if the economy is different or the different uh, circumstances at this point? And you've just hit the nail on the head. Why? Because if the Canadian dollar falls, well, presto, everything we import from the States goes up in price. Plus, Remember, every commodity is measured in U.S. dollars. So that is a real inflationary push when that happens. 
Bingo. And I think you've just hit it. Not only does the Canadian dollar suffer and it costs us more for U.S. imports or imports that are based on the U.S. dollar, but the, 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 the fact is, Mike, that it's going to be a situation where the raising of prices is going to then impact inflation in Canada. Inflation will go up, and then the Bank of Canada is going to have to raise interest rates to tamp down inflation. And I don't know where I'm going with this conversation, Mike, except in a circle. Well, I'll give you one number from the fourth quarter, and this is why this is so real. The annual growth for import prices, you know, we're talking about inflation, 13% in the fourth quarter, 13%. And the bank itself acknowledges one of the problems is we had a 5% drop in the Canadian dollar over the last year. I think it's actually a little higher than that, but bottom line is we're paying more for uh, for our imports from the States, paying more for commodities. So presto, there you've got it. A 13% increase in uh, import prices? Well, as you say, you're right back to the rock in a hard place. Because if we don't follow suit with the higher interest rates, then we may, it's not a guarantee, but we'll certainly see some price increases that add to inflation. So there, as you say, you feel like you're running around a circle sometimes. Uh, you know what? I'm going to maybe go a step further. I think it is pretty well a guarantee. If we start seeing import prices go up, I don't know where they're going to be uh, swallowed. I, I, I'm certain it's not going to be the retailers who are going to absorb. I think it's come, going to come right back down to the consumer. And that, Mike, basically is my real worry. If we can manage that and the United States isn't as aggressive and we sort of see Canadian dollar fall a little bit, then I really believe that we'll be okay. But if we see a trajectory higher in that U.S. dollar, it takes us back to conversations that we've had over the past six months. Well, like Tiff Macklin, we'll wait and see. If it's good enough for him, it's good enough for us. Thanks, Mike. Have a great week. Thanks, Mike. Okay, thank you, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week. First, a little context, though. Did you hear the story this week that insolvency filings for individuals, well, they're just starting to rise as the impact of high interest rates starts to take hold. I mean, we saw January a 33.7% increase compared to January 222. Business insolvency is also up 55% compared to January 222. I mean, it's not a surprise. I mean, given a big percentage of small and medium-sized businesses, according to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, well, they still haven't seen sales get back to pre-pandemic levels. On average, they're carrying about $114,000 in debt that they built up during the pandemic. But another fact, we're seeing car loans in arrears on the rise too. And finally, we've seen these polls for the last six months, but it's something like a third to 40% of Canadians are borrowing to meet day-to-day needs. The point, taking on high levels of debt is a problem, especially when interest rates are going higher. But I'm not so sure everybody fully understands the implications when they took out those loans. And it was inevitable that interest rates were going higher, despite assurances by the Bank of Canada. Why? Because we were at 5,000-year lows. Of course, it was going to boomerang back to some degree. But it brings me to my quote of the week by one of Canada's best-known business people, Order of Canada winner, major backer of philanthropic works, Frank Justra, who recently writing about the danger and the lack of understanding in taking on debt stated, in quotes, it's absolutely baffling that financial literacy is not universally required in school. Put bluntly, learning to prudently manage one's finances far outweighs the importance of learning algebra or chemistry. 
Well, I'll tell you, as someone myself who's been a big advocate of teaching the basics of personal finance, including all about debt, all about taxes, along with the fundamentals of economics and finance before kids graduate from high school. Well, I'm so happy to see Frank push this forward because it is, uh, you know, should be. It's baffling that it's not, that we can't find time in the curriculum to teach some level of financial literacy, although a higher level than we've got. Yes, there are some exceptions, but really, this should be a priority. And we're about to live a period here where people's personally, financially, especially at the lower end of the income scale, are going to be devastated and all for a lack of understanding and knowledge. You know, poll after poll tells us that our cost of living is the biggest concern, and we're getting more uh, issues around that, that people are borrowing, and I'll get to that uh, later on, but people are borrowing money literally to make ends meet. Uh, we've seen people making food substitution, and speaking of food, is that the one area that just it's impossible to make progress on? I mean, double digits last year in food increases. That's why I'm so pleased to have with me Sylvain Charlebois, acknowledged uh, expert with the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Thank goodness for them. They put out the data that everyone looks at. He's, of course, a professor in food distribution at Dalhousie. Sylvain, thanks for taking the time with us. Oh, my pleasure. And it's interesting. It comes at a time when I was just reading a report uh, you know, from the government, Financial Consumer Agency, talking about consumer vulnerability, evidence from the monthly COVID financial well-being survey. What they did was a little different. They didn't give us the yearly inflation numbers. They looked at inflation from the Jan 220 right through till Jan 223. And I think some of the numbers are startling. And that's why I always call this my shocking stat of the week. And that's 54% jump from for spaghetti, for example, 41% jump uh, for butter. I mean, the yeah. list just keeps going on. I mean, everybody's way up there, 20% more for coffee, 23% more for chicken thighs. And they had just this massive list that, I mean, certainly we thought average food inflation last year at 10% was bad enough, but the real issue for people is it's cumulative over the last couple of years. So uh, I, again, such a timely topic. I appreciate you finding time. Oh, no, my pleasure. I mean, we do get a lot of questions. A lot of people just are having a hard time understanding what is going on. So uh, with data, we try to clarify things, but it's been it's been challenging for sure. Yeah, surely it's got to be more sophisticated, though, than thinking there's only one variable involved, and that's called greedflation, you know, greed yes. on the part of grocery stores. I mean, I just find that way too obviously way too simplistic so give us an idea of what factors are in play here well i uh as you probably know i i testified before parliament myself on december 5th uh, and i was included in in this food inflation investigation and and we know that on march 8th the ceos will be uh joining uh, the the committee as well to do the same thing and, and at the time what i said to uh parliamentarians is that Greed is a very difficult thing to measure. I mean, you have to agree on what greed looks like. And I've always said to people who believe that there is greed going on, where's the line? Is it is it five percent, six percent? Is it is it one dollar? I mean, are, mm -hmm. are are these companies allowed to make money? And if so, how much? How much is too much? And, and this is where conversations around inflation uh, get more interesting, or at least it clarifies things. And, and to be honest, I've never gotten a clear answer from anyone. I don't believe there's greedflation going on in retailing. There's no evidence of it. Margins, operating margins have remained the same over the last six, seven years. 
However, and this is a big however, uh, operating margins in Canada are double of what they are in the U.S. So if you look at Loblaws, Empire, and Metro, and you compare that trio with, say, Kroger and Albertsons, uh, margins are double, which means one thing. The landscape in Canada is not all that competitive. And that's mm-hmm. really the big point here. Well, you know, I was looking at a survey that said that something like, even though there wasn't specific evidence that there's abuse by grocers, about 80% of Canadians thought there was abuse. And I'm wondering, it goes back to, I think it was 2017, 2017, and we did have a bread price fixing scheme going on that was uncovered and and proven. So I'm wondering if that just hasn't colored the whole landscape. Like they did it to me before in 2017, they're probably doing it to me right now. The, the skepticism is uh, is deserved, uh, I think, yeah. uh, essentially because Canadians, in my view, feel unprotected. Uh, so we've had this this uh, bread price fixing scheme going on for 14 years. Uh, Loblaw disclosed to the bureau a a federal agency receive immunity as a result. Nobody went to prison. Nobody got fined. And then two years later, we learned that there was uh, there was a uh, a scheme, a, a cartel esque sort of program, and uh, nobody got punished. And the and the investigation is still ongoing, almost eight years after they disclosed. So the skepticism is, is absolutely deserved because we do have a system that doesn't necessarily protect consumers all that well. I guess the other side for me, though, is some of the variables would seem obvious. Like we've all complained at the gas pump, you know, out in Vancouver, for example, you went to 242 a liter. We we were chronicling fertilizer cost increases here, you know, because of uh, the sanctions on Russia and because of the high natural gas prices, because we had shut down natural gas production. So, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I thought there was some very obvious factors that were contributing. And we can start with something everyone understands is the foods transported you know, yep. to the grocery store. Well, I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that transportation costs went way up. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that, I mean, we are looking at a global phenomena and I think it needs to be underscored that it is a global phenomena. When you look at the Canada's current food inflation rate compared to other G7 countries, we're number three. We have the third lowest after Japan and the US at 10.4%. And if you look at the gap between inflation and food inflation were at 4.5%, which is about average. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're doing okay in the grand scheme of things. And what's, what has pushed prices higher globally supply chains. Uh, and that is linked to higher energy costs, labor issues affecting the entire system. Ukraine made input costs higher. And of course, climate change. Look at what's going on in uh, in Europe, in the UK. There are shortages, major shortages of produce. That's due to energy costs and climate change uh, down south, where there's there were droughts last fall. We got hit ourselves with lettuce. We couldn't actually get leafy greens from California, if you remember. But we were able to actually buy ourselves out of our problem by buying lettuce out of Mexico, Arizona, and and Europe. So we're a rich country. We're not going to run out of food, but uh, things are getting really complicated with climate change. And and it comes at a cost. We are paying more for, for weather patterns. 
Well, and your other point is so well taken. I mean, it just exposes the oversimplicity of saying it must be our grocer or local grocery store or grocery yeah. change, because how does that happen in Europe? If you know what I mean? Like, you really That's think right. a Canadian well, grocery chain, you know, and having the third lowest prices, yeah. I think that'll shock a lot of people when you look at, you know, food inflation. I think it's the, the reason why Galen Weston has become one of the most hated Canadians out there. I, I think it's by design. I mean, first of all, there's not one other nation's uh, nation in the world where you actually see the CEO on television every night selling you stuff. Okay, and so he's the persona, and he's not he's not the ambassador for one company. He's the ambassador for the entire industry. So mm-hmm. he became a target, an easy target. People can relate to grocery stores, and they can relate to a face. Uh, I bet you most people don't even know who the CEO of Empire is and who the CEO of Metro is. I, mm-hmm. I know who they are. I've met them. But most Canadians don't care or don't know. And they'll be testifying next week. But the target next week is absolutely going to be Galen Weston, the guy dressed in yellow on TV every night. Yeah, well, I'm thinking and yellow of... is just the worst color, you know, when you're, <laughs> when you're in this situation of inflation and trying to convey to the public, you have great products and you're dressed in yellow while people are suffering with higher prices. It's just not the greatest color to go with. As you're saying, though, I mean, they're dealing with higher wage costs now. You know, interest rates are up if they're borrowing. You know, I mean, uh, property taxes are up, uh, you know, in different areas. I mean, I guess my whole point, though, is let's get a little more sophistication than suggesting it was, you know, simply greed. And I'll I'll give you one example that uh, AgriFood Analytics and Dalhousie brought to my attention, and it's one that made perfect sense. You get supply chain problems, you know, slower arriving in my store. And you get that thing uh, called shelfflation. And I want you to explain that a little bit. Yeah. But it was a factor that I wasn't including in any analysis I was doing. Yeah. So there's uh, a lot of people talked about shrinkflation, you know, shrinking packages, uh, charging the same price. That really upset a lot of people. But shelfflation is hidden. And uh, with less, uh, with fewer people around, with supply chains running more slowly, the shelf life of a lot of products is compromised as a result of a, of a lengthier, I guess, period to transport anything. And so what has happened over the last uh, several months or several last couple of years is that we've seen more products uh, reaching the market, but the shelf life it has as as lessened. It, it's much mm-hmm. shorter, so you'll end up buying products at the at the store, and you have to throw it away prematurely at home, and and that ends up costing you money. Which is why, and, and of course, it's costing you money as a consumer. But it's also costing money to grocers, and somebody, somebody, someone actually has to cover the cost of waste up the food chain as well. And, and I, I think I, I wonder if not everyone listening today hasn't experienced that. You know, I, I immediately oh. some things come to mind where, as you say, didn't we just buy this yesterday and we're throwing it yeah. out or there's mold sometimes appearing? sometimes it's like dairy, for example. Mm. Sometimes people, I know for a fact that a lot of people have had to thrown out dairy products, fluid milk or whatever, even before the best before date, just yeah. because there was a, there was a breach in the cold chain, uh, something broke, because uh, cold chains are expensive to run. And a lot of things can happen, especially with uh, with global supply chains not working well. Let's say that you're running a truck 
and you need a part to repair your truck, but you're, you need money, you need, to, you need to drive. And so you'll take a chance just taking on cargo uh, without a functioning truck to get it to destination because people need to eat. So that, that pressure is really forcing this supply chain to, to work overtime under, uh, under some extreme conditions. Now, when you look out to 2023, the rest of 2023, and maybe a little further, are you seeing any signs of real relief on the food side? Uh, you know, I think some of the yep. pressures have eased in terms of, at least at this point, diesel and gasoline prices, although I'm not confident they stay down. But I'm just saying that at least there's, that's an easy one where you say there's been some relief there. But do you see uh, price pressures reducing so we can maybe settle down these uh, these prices? Because so far we haven't had any progress, actually, you know, when you look no. at the inflation rates. No, and uh, we, we predicted it. Uh, so in December, when we introduced Canada's food price report, our 13th edition, we did say to Canadians, we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, we're going to we're going to be we're looking at a very, very difficult winter. And that's what we're getting right now. Uh, just because of of pressures up the food chain, you talk to ingredient companies, they're having a hard time getting ingredients, they have to pay more. That pressure is flowing through the supply chain and that's still taking a while. My guess is that we're going to, things are going to calm down probably end of spring, early summer. So the five to 7% we're predicting this year, most of it will happen um, in the earlier part of 2023. The worst were we're actually experiencing it right now. Like, uh, well, February was probably the worst month. We're going to get some numbers later, but I think February was the worst month. And then things will actually calm down probably May, June, and it'll get easier in the fall. Uh, and I'm just looking again, when we look at uh, how we can fix any of this, you, you said one thing there that we don't have the level of competition you have in the States. Of course, they've got a population so much larger than ours. And uh, maybe yeah. that helps that to be, you know, to support more, more competition. But what well, do you see we, in, in this well, country? We don't have it. We don't have a discount grocer in Canada, like a yeah. true standalone discount grocer, like Aldi and little. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I hope next week, you know, parliamentarians will actually ask why, why as Aldi and little, thought about Canada for 20 years, but they've never entered the market. The reality is simply this. Canada is an un- unattractive market to invest in. It's We're a large country, 38 million people. Distribution costs are very high. But the other thing that nobody's talking about are interprovincial barriers. If you start doing business in BC, for example, and you want to expand eastward, you got to deal with new regulations in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, in, in Ontario and Quebec and so on and so forth. We don't have one Canada. We have Canada's. Mm-hmm. So look at Target. In 2014, Target basically came into the market, bought Zellers, and left the country in nine months because they underestimated the cost to do business in Canada. If you want to make the grocery business more competitive, I certainly would look at the cost to do business in Canada. That would help. That, that's a terrific point. And, and we've had economists over the years point out the cost of interprovincial trade barriers. Oh, it's kind of a gimme. Yeah. And yet it would cost us as consumers nothing to remove them. Do you know what I mean? It's not like something that we need what? a government uh, finances to do it. Get rid of the damn regulations. <laughs> Walmart succeeded 
with its expansion into Canada because it, it, it adopted a, an incremental approach. They started with 20 stores and then 30, 40, 50. And now Walmart is one of the largest grocers we have in the country. Target went in all in. 125 mm -hmm. stores. That was their mistake. They shouldn't have done that because they realized too late that Canada is complicated, super complicated compared to the U.S. And again, and this is the thing that I, I, I'm interested is when you testified in December, what did you find the listening was like? Were they hearing you, you know, on topics like this? Uh, well, it was kind of weird because uh, it was the first session of the investigation, and I was in with uh, with Loblaw and Empire and Michael. Uh, as you may guess, I wasn't a target. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, and they were asking questions about about uh, about greedflation and prices to them. They were using me to validate some of the questions. What I found really strange is that they were asking an academic to validate answers in real time in front of an audience, which it was a bit surreal. I've testified, I think, about 15 times now in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't, I, I'm no spring chicken. I've been there before. But that session, I saw a committee that was not prepared, was not asking the right questions. And I'm hoping that next week with CEOs, they'll be asking the right questions and they'll be listening as well. And I hope the Canadian public is also listening to points like you're making on that score. We're not a good place to do business. Interprovincial trade barriers, things that have been mentioned, researched, you know, uh, in the academic or the economic community, and yet no progress made, in sp despite it lip service. And this is where we're feeling it directly, you know, exactly. when it comes to things like food prices. That impacts the most vulnerable the most, as all of these mistakes are. You know, who gets hurt the most? It's always at the lower end of the uh, financial realm. And uh, yeah, it's just an incredibly important subject. Uh, and it's just one I want to congratulate you and your team there, because uh, very few people are doing such first class work on the most, you know, as I say, the key component of our cost of living right now is food costs. So agri-food analytics at Dalhousie, great job. And Sylvain, I know you've got other things on today, so I really appreciate you finding time for us. Well, thank you, Michael, for the invitation and well, all the best. Like I said, things will get better. <clears throat> Not yet, though. <laughs> okay, well, I hope we can visit again in the near future with a lot of good news. Thank you. All right, take care. My goodness, I, I've been losing sleep over this, but of course it's March 4th, it's Saturday, it's the polar plunge. Thank goodness I got Ozzy by my side because he's the only one who hasn't been wimping. He's handed me Kleenex. He says, stop the whining, stop the tears. He seems all up for it, Ozzy, and I congratulate you for that. But uh, And again, as you reminded me, and I remind others, that this is for such a worthy cause. You know, too often people with intellectual disabilities, and I'm talking the kids, the young adults, the older, older participants, are absolutely forgotten in our society. And I'm so pleased that so many of our Money Talks uh, podcast listeners have donated to support this. And there's still time to donate. If you haven't had time to at this point, hey, all you all have to do is go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. It's right there, mikesmoneytalks.ca. You know, and I think given the weather, I mean, this is the worst weather we've done it in. It's coldest out there. The water temperature is within one-tenth of a degree Celsius of being the 20-year low. So we're doing full measure when we're getting in the water there. But, Ozzy, my congratulations uh, to you. But let's start with something else here today that you've been warning us. And we're going back into the fall, and you told me specifically that, my goodness, they've got a foreign buyer's ban going on 
and yet they've given us no detail. They announced it was going to kick in January 1st, but no details. I mean, we even got into December, still didn't have details. The industry didn't have details. Well, now we've got them, and maybe not a surprise. I mean, it feels so slapdash, but man, we're getting a lot of people pointing out some very negative unintended consequences. Yeah, and it's funny that it was very clear what the penalties would be if you didn't do it as a realtor or if you dis if you disobeyed the rules and so on. But the rules weren't clear at all. Now, economist uh, heavyweight Benjamin Tall from CIBC weighs in. He says, this un unintended consequences require amending. They require amending. And he says, look, he says the, the, the motivation was OK, right? There's, there seems to be nothing to lose. It's, it's a good job to to ban foreigners from buying. But he points out there's only a very small share of the housing stock, Ontario 2%, BC about 3%. And the question on whether there's nothing to lose, there's plenty to lose because the language of the act appears straightforward until you show it to a lawyer. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about that because they're talking, they say it's residential property, but I've been reading all sorts of places that that is ta far too uh, nebulous a concept. They're not specifically defining it. So now it's got a catch-all for all sorts of things that we don't want it to include. Ask a man on the street and say, what is a residential property? He says, well, it's a house, it's detached, it's a row, it's a condo. But the act includes any developed or vacant land that does not contain any any habitable dwelling that not contain any habitable dwelling and that is zoned for residential or mixed use and is located within a census metropolitan area, which is a, a mouthful by itself because very difficult to figure that out. But the funny thing is, Michael, it now includes many commercial real estate assets if they happen to be on land with zoning that permits a residential or mixed use property. In fact, the, the entire area of downtown Toronto falls under that category. And, and also, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking for me, who I look at the markets this way and I go, well, what about if there's some foreign ownership in like a real estate investment trust? Uh, you know, other questions have popped up that way. And to me, it seems like it's anti-supply. You're actually going to be discouraging supply at a time when there is a consensus we need more. Yeah, and that, that you hit the nail on the head. I mean, a read by definition, uh, based on the language of the act, the vast majority of foreign publicly traded Canadian REITs are foreign entities. Imagine the vast majority, according to Benjamin Tall. And he also points out that the REIT is the most capable and motivated potential builder of purpose-built units, which is the act now working against. The whole idea is that it would be, would be a, a benefit for them uh, to, to do this. Uh, also, the word purchases is, is nebulous because... Is it a direct or indirect purchase, which means that any acquisition of a lease or a mortgage tied to residential property is prohibited? And what about share purchases and so on and so on? And so clearly the policymakers went out very late, very fast, and now we're all bewildered. And after a couple of drinks, I think. But anyway, leave that aside. <laughs> but, I mean, I just sit here shaking my head. I'm not surprised. I mean, government is just a nonstop a cavalcade of unintended consequences. But what I find amazing is what I just alluded to is that this works directly against the one thing across the board that people agree, we need more supply, especially as we alluded to over the last couple of weeks. We know we've got a lot of newcomers coming into the country. We know we have they have to live somewhere. They're going to gravitate to the major urban centers. Uh, as you say, this covers the whole downtown core of Toronto. I mean, have you already seen or read or at least heard comments by people in the industry itself saying, you know what, I think I'm going to hold off with this deal or I'm not going to, I'm not going to proceed until I get clarification? 
well, that's later, yes. Everybody's on hold and, and scratching their head. Now, Charles says that many commercial listed deals have already been canceled or on hold, despite the fact they have nothing to do with residential housing. I mean, that's got to be the killer. He says the only people that are smiling are the lawyers. <laughs> and I'm just thinking the response from government so far. Uh, sorry, I've, uh, the sarcastic person in me comes out, the cynic comes out, because I'm sure the response is global warming, but I'll leave that. Uh, but have we heard any signs from the government that they understand this? I, I doubt, I'm sure they're getting so much pushback because, I mean, look, Michael, a private equity fund with a minority foreign investor tries to acquire a share in a pipeline business that happens to sit on the sand land zoned as residential can no longer proceed. I mean, it has impacts just outside real estate that really it shouldn't, shouldn't be. Uh, is, and I don't think it's intended to include, but it does. Well, again, uh, this is the kind of thing that people should take note of. I mean, we know what the problem is. Three levels of government have to get together. If affordable housing, or not just affordable, it's supply. Increased supply will help affordability. That should be understood. It won't be, you don't need government subsidies. You just need governments to quit adding on to the cost of developing a property. And it is extensive when you add three levels of government. You've got other things like, uh, depending on the province, of course, but in British Columbia, you've got a property purchase tax that adds thousands of dollars to the purchase of even a modest home. Uh, so the list goes on about government counter actions to affordability and allowing people into the market, including the recent rise in interest rates. And now they throw this on, which will discourage uh, you know, uh, discourage supply. Ozzy, it's just, it's a formula that just won't work. Yeah, and there's no doubt about it that something will have to be done. In the meantime, everybody's sitting there biting their fingernails. Can I proceed with my deal or not? Well, I'll just say this. I'm going to English Bay, one o'clock, dipping in cold water. Ozzy Jurek is my mentor. He's throwing me in, he says. Ozzy, look forward to seeing you then. Thanks, Mike. And I just wanted to mention briefly that the early numbers show that our prices are down about 10%. Sales are still down a whopping 50%. And listings are higher, but not like Toronto. So if you want the real numbers and all the details about the number, go to ozbuzz.ca and uh, sign in. It's free. Just put your email there and we'll have the latest numbers updated and explained on Monday. And again, it's absolutely free. You just have to tell them where to send it. So put your email address in and it gets you up to date on all the latest stuff. And of course, the numbers for uh, February just coming out. So ozbuzz.ca. Thanks, Ozzy. See Thanks, you soon. Mike. Thanks, Mike. And I'll see you Saturday. I just want to leave you with Mark Twain's admonition. Clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. <laughs> Ozzy Jurek. Hey, let's go live to the trading desk now. I'm going to grab Victor Adair. Vic, I'm going to start with a tough question for you. Are you ready? But this is, it gives, it's illustrated with so much that you can't make simple correlations all the time. So you've got pressure to ri raise interest rates in the U.S. The Federal Reserve's talking much more aggressively, as I mentioned with Michael, than Canada is. And Euro being very clear out of their European Central Bank, they're raising rates. And you look around, hey, wait a second. I thought higher interest rates were bad for the stock market. That has not been the case. I mean, you look in Europe, you look, uh, you know, uh, even in the States, not doing too bad, but in Europe doing damn well. 
Well, the European stock market, the, the FTSE in the UK, is at all-time highs. The uh, Euro stocks 50, which is kind of a European version of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, is just inches away from hitting all-time highs. Those indices have been much stronger than the American indices here the last couple of months or so. I mean, even Canada is outperforming. Japan's outperforming. One of the reasons I think Europe does so is doing better is Europeans save a lot more money than Americans or Canadians do. And when higher interest rates are good for them, you know, they're going to be making money in their deposits and then maybe they go out and spend it. So that's kind of a backhanded way of saying why higher interest rates in Europe are good for the stock market. Yeah, it's just, but it's an example of, they say, if someone makes just a simplistic correlation, you know, higher rates as they're pushing in Europe should equal lower stocks. That's not the case. There's a lot more variables involved, you know, with all of this. Uh, and speaking of that, I want to come to inflation for a second, because of course, that's been the rationale for raising interest rates. But wage side of inflation, I mean, I, I know what you've caught it and you put it on uh, victoradare.ca, this kind of thing. But I mean, gosh, you look at some industries who are laying off like tech, but you're looking at other industries like Delta Airlines. Did you see that wage increase this week? Yeah, Delta uh, signed an agreement with their pilots to increase their wages by 34% over the next four years. Uh, Delta's a, a big airline. You have to imagine that the other airlines are going to do something similar. Uh, all along the line here, that, well, the, certainly the past few months uh, on my blog I've been talking about, I think where inflation is stickiest is is with wages you know we haven't got enough workers to fill all the jobs that gives labor a chance to negotiate for higher uh income and i think people realize that their their living expenses have been going up more than what the cpi looks like so people are going to try to get paid more so they can kind of catch up to what's happening so that that's called uh, a wage price spiral and I think that is sort of the weak leg uh, in inflation or the thing that will boost inflation the most. And let me keep coming with inflation for just a second because I chatted with Michael about this earlier. And that is, you know, if the U.S. raises rates and Canada doesn't and Europe does, I mean, that puts downward pressure on the Canadian dollar which then gets translated into higher import prices, higher commodity prices for Canadian manufacturing, for example. So it's sort of inflationary to not raise interest rates on that side of the regard. I mean, it just explains again how complicated all these relationships are, but I would think a weaker dollar spells more inflation. Yeah, well, something you were saying earlier about, you know, you can't just look at one or two variables and say, because of this, such and such is going to happen. I mean, I, I've learned long ago that there's so many things impacting the markets that I trade that if I if I think I know why something's going to move, I need to have a second look at that. Um, the, the Canada here, the Canadian dollar usually is impacted by how the stock market's doing, what the interest rate differential is between the two countries, how how the U.S. dollar is doing relative to other currencies, and certainly also how commodity prices are doing. And right in through here, it seems as though the most important thing that's determining the value of the Canadian dollar relative to the U.S. dollar is, is that relative interest rates. It looks like the Bank of Canada's got their hands tied while the, uh, the rest of the world is moving rates higher. 
Yeah, it's as I say, there's just so many variables. By the way, I want to give you credit with Jack Crooks. I remember having a discussion with you guys ages ago in Calgary. And the point you were making is one that you, it's one of those where I go, well, of course, you know, like, why aren't, why aren't I think focused on that? And I thought the point was, and, and I, I use this a lot. It's not what I think. It's what the market's focusing on. I may know, you know, I, I may have, there's 93 variables. This shouldn't happen. And what you and Jack were, were forwarding was, no, you've got to, in fact, identify what the market cares about, not what you care about. And, you know, this is a great example. That's why people get confused. They go, hey, gold's got to be much higher. I mean, look at inflation. Well, the market may not be caring about that. Of course, there's currencies involved and all that. But I just thought it was always a, a wonderful point to keep in mind. I'm trying to anticipate what is the market telling me they're caring about, and it ain't necessarily what I think they should. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I'm trying to say here, is there's so many things out there that are impacting markets, but right now, interest rates or relative interest rates have been hugely important. And let me give you another example. The Mexican peso right now is trading at a six-year high against the U.S. dollar. The Mexican peso seems to me this year to be the strongest currency in the world. Now, one of the reasons for that is short-term interest rates in Mexico are at 11%. You know, despite the problems they have there with the, the drug gangs and all that sort of thing. And there's a, there's if you read the Wall Street Journal, you know, to give you an assessment of how things are in Mexico, it looks like they got nothing but trouble, but their currency is rocketing higher because of these really high interest rates, or at least that appears to be the reason. Well, as I say, another great point. Uh, let's finish with this, Vic, very quickly. Again, so what are you focusing or, or what, are your tra- what is your trading looking at uh, right now, if anything? Okay, uh, and let me preface it again. Like I'm a very short-term trader. I can buy something and sell it later the next day, particularly if it's not working. I'm very likely out of it quickly. Uh, I've thought that uh, the the decline in the stock market here the past couple of weeks had, had run a little far, that the the move to see higher interest rates kind of got overdone, and I think that's um, reversing a bit. So I've been a buyer this week of the major American stock indices, and, and today I bought the Canadian dollar. Now, again, I may be out of that, you know, before the, <laughs> before the close, but... Yeah. Uh, that's that's just what I see here, and if the, the American market may play catch up with what's going on in the rest of the world. Well, we'll get a chance to chat with you next week, but you don't have to wait till then. You can go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Vic, thanks for taking the time. Chat next week. Hey, Mike, it's always fun talking with you, and uh, have a great time in the uh, Pacific Ocean this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Time now for this week's Goofy Award. And for it, let's go to the Chinese election interference scandal. But first, let me point out that Chinese interference in Canada, including cyber attacks or funding of disinformation campaigns, uh, threats against Canadians of Chinese origin or ethnicity, have been clearly spelled out by CSIS and the Canadian military for well over a decade. I mean, the current election interference is just the latest in a long line of clandestine activities by the Communist Party to the detriment of our country. I mean, over 12 years ago, CSIS director Richard Fadden warned that there were provincial cabinet ministers and other elected officials in Canada who were under Beijing's general influence. In 2018, today's CSIS director, David Vignon, warned that China was actively engaged in 
the monitoring and or coercion of students, faculty, and university officials in an effort to further their political influence. I mean, come on, that was five, six years ago. There's virtually no reaction by the government, by the way, when the Communist Party formalized legislation in 2017 that compels Chinese individuals and organizations, read businesses there, both public and private, as well as those operating abroad, i.e. in Canada, to cooperate with state intelligence officials upon request or face jail time. I mean, the evidence against China's efforts to undermine Canadian society and influence politics are so extensive that it would take like hours to list, including the obscene kidnapping and detention of Canadian hostages, Michael Spavar and Michael Kovrig. So when we talk about the latest interference in our election, it's part of a long line of aggressive Chinese action. And let me digress and just remind you that in China, we're talking about the biggest human rights abuser in the world, a regime that not only imprisons an estimated million Uyghurs in concentration camps, uh, uses them for slave labor, but the one that stays with me is the BBC uh, chronicled reports that Uyghur women are chained to bed and auctioned off for them to be raped. But none of this has elicited a strong response from the Liberal government. Indeed, I mean, what's very questionable, I'm not saying there's anything untoward, but they're questionable that they held political fundraisers attended by Chinese billionaires. So now we come to the latest revelations on China's interference in the 219-221 federal elections, which details were provided by a leaked CSIS report that was featured on the front page of the Globe and Mail, including the revelation that the federal government had been warned on numerous occasions. Yet in November, when global Sam Cooper broke the story of Communist Party funneling money to candidates, the prime minister's response was, in quote, I do not have any information, nor have I been briefed on any federal candidates receiving any money from China. But you know what? As the National Post Tristan Hopper notes, seven months earlier, March 222, members of Mr. Trudeau's inner circle told the House of Commons committees that the Prime Minister had been briefed, in their words, multiple times. But here's the goofy part. You'd think that the response on the part of the government of Canada would be outrage. But instead of directing it at Xi Jinping and the Communist Party, the Prime Minister was furious at the whistleblowers in CSIS who leaked the report and he declared his determination to bring them to justice. And as the details of the Chinese interference became known, and I think the anger on the part of the public grew, at least some of the public certainly grew, the government narrative took on even more bizarre turns. The prime minister saying the concern over the election interference was racist. Are you kidding? He went on to say raising the concerns were helping the Chinese undermine Canadian democracy. He went so far as to say those expressing concern were just like Donald Trump and his election deniers. Anything but standing up to the Chinese themselves, or God forbid, admitting some responsibility for not taking action after the 2019 reports. I mean, the latest fallback line is the interference didn't change the outcome of two elections. As if that's the point. And which, by the way, nobody knows to the degree it did have an influence in things like specific outcomes in specific writings. But the point is that the evidence has been presented by the country's top security agency. Members of parliament know about this. From the specific actions to influence of the election results, along with communist sympathizers actually in parliamentary staffs. And the government response is to blame the whistleblowers in CSIS 
while denigrating Canadians who are concerned? Now, I do appreciate, by the way, many Canadians are not so bothered by this, not so bothered by interference by the Communist Party of China or taking Canadian hostages or threats against Canadians of Chinese ethnicity, especially with ones who still got uh, people in uh, family in China. But I'm clearly not one of them. The question is, are you? I'm afraid that's all the time we have today. I got to get ready. It's time to plunge. Hey, by the way, I just want to give a shout out to Dave Braithwaite and his wife, uh, Anch- Wilson, Scott Grant, and his sister Lee, uh, Re Yolanda, Yonida, sorry, sorry, Re, Re Yonida, and Fortune Robert Jarvis and his sister Eva say they're going to plunge with us. Oh my goodness, that's fantastic. And again, let me finish with a big thanks for those of you who have supported Special Olympics means a great deal. And if you still want to donate, please do. You can do it at mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca. And by the way, in case you didn't know this, the water temperature today is the coldest it's been in 10 years. In the last decade today is the coldest water it's been. Thank goodness we're doing it for Special Olympics as I wouldn't get anywhere near that water in normal circumstances. Have a great week. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.